Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, every once in a while, we get to check in with our good friends on the American Shoreline Podcast, and we have one today. Rob Young, the director of the Program for the Study of Developed Shorelines at Western Carolina University, has been on the podcast a couple of times, uh, Tyler, as you know, and he is a geologist and an expert on coastal development with a particular point of view that we appreciate learning about all the time. So I'm really looking forward to checking in with Rob, seeing what's going on at the uh, Program for the Study of Developed Shorelines and uh, what else is going on in the world. Well, it's been uh, the last time we had Rob on was just right before COVID uh, changed our worlds forever. And we were actually, believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, talking about March Madness on that show, which uh, we did a little March Madness. We never came to pass because COVID uh, canceled uh, that particular tournament. But uh, the summer has passed and uh, we noticed that Rob was active on social media posting interesting things and we said it's time to have rob back I always on the love show talking to rob me too and yeah. there's a lot going on this this being the day before election day uh this show coming out uh we we figure we got to talk about the time that's passed uh what what's going on in the world what rob's working on what rob's thinking we want to know what rob's thinking is an interesting <laughs> thinker so we look forward to it let's have a quick word up from our sponsors the American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA.com. Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants offers high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, and the skilled and respectful crews to get your project built. Make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring the dune and wetland ecology of your home or barrier island. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at dunesciencegroup.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking time out of your busy day to talk to us. Uh, my pleasure, guys. Always a Always uh, fun to hang out with you for a little while. Well, uh, you know, Rob, it's been a, an interesting year and, uh, you know, in the politics in the country and the pandemic and all the rest of it. But let's start with uh, what have you been seeing this year in the world of coastal management, coastal development, coastal shore protection? Uh, what's the highlight of the year for you in terms of news developments, either good or bad? The highlight of the year. Um 
Well, it's pretty hard to ignore the hurricane season that we've had this year. Yeah. Uh, which is not over yet and um, breaking multiple records in, you know, including just an, you know, unbelievably sad double impact um, for our friends in uh, Western Louisiana, Lake Charles area. Um, you know, not something that I can't remember seeing um, that kind of a double impact from significant storms in one very vulnerable place like during my career. So, you know, I, I guess just sitting back and watching this year's storm season, um, not being able to get out there and do the kind, same kind of field work that we might usually do is a little bit frustrating. Um, but, you know, I, at this moment, off the top of my head, um, that's that's got to be the I don't know if highlight is the right word. No, but it's definitely worth pointing that out. It has been noteworthy, and it's top of mind for me, along with the fires. But uh, you bring something up. You know, I mentioned in the intro that we were talking last time you were on. We were talking about March Madness, and COVID has happened, and uh, you are uh, at Western Carolina University. What what does your work look like in the COVID era? Uh, you mentioned an impact to your field work, but you know, what have you been able to uh, work on? How have you been impacted? Well, fortunately for us, a tremendous amount of the work that we do is happens on a desktop computer. You know, it's mapping. It's a lot of GIS analysis, uh, a lot of data collection and analysis that doesn't require field work, even though some of our work does. So, We've been able to remain fairly productive. You know, we're fortunate. I've got a great staff, and they are able to do a lot of work uh, remotely. Uh, we also we're, we have our own building here on campus, so uh, I'm sitting in my office like I always do, talking to you right now, and that really hasn't changed. We have a fairly safe work workspace that we're able to create for ourselves. So, you know, there's a little less travel than there has been, and um, there's some nice parts of that and some sad parts of that. But uh, at, at this point, it hasn't put too much of a hitch in our get-along and our uh, ability to complete the products that we need to complete, for, especially for our grant-funded research. Are the, are the students back on campus, and are you guys having uh, in-person classes at Western Carolina? We do have students on campus, and we've got a little over 10,000 students here at Western Carolina University. They are here, and the classes are a mix of in-person and online, um, as, as in many places, but the students are in the dorms. You know, we've had a couple of mini outbreaks on campus. They just announced one, you know, 17 students from one dorm. We've got a special dorm for quarantine. We have not had any significant outbreaks. Um, faculty have been relatively safe. So, you know, knock on wood, uh, things have gone, you know, about as well as you could hope so far here at Western Carolina University. It's good to hear. And so the pandemic has had is definitely on the top of everyone's mind this year. But I think you're right to start with the hurricane season and particularly like Charles uh, there's been some data collected uh, about Hurricane Laura. 
which hit Lake Charles, and then it was followed more recently by Hurricane Delta. And We uh, went all the way through. We went all the way through the alphabet. I think we have 25 names stored right now, and at the time of this recording, Hurricane Epsilon is out in the middle of the Atlantic. Uh, right. Not a threatening posture, but another hurricane uh, on the board. Uh, Rob, I, I, I read that the storm surge level above ground level in Lake Charles area reached 17 feet. Is that accurate? And what do you make of that surge number that we were recently seeing with these storms? Well, I think that, um, you know, that's, this is for Laura, of course, I think, not for Delta. I, I believe so, yes. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I think that that's about what we expected um, for the max surge um, along some portions of that shoreline. There's a lot of undeveloped shoreline there um, right. and, and wetlands. So, um, you know, we're probably not going to get good storm surge water lines for much of the impact area, which makes it a little bit more complicated. Hmm. Um, but, but I, you know, I think that that's probably a, 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 sounds like a pretty reasonable number for me. And, um, you know, this this is not to take anything away from the suffering that the folks in that part of Louisiana experienced during these storms. Um, but that is a fairly low density of development section of the Gulf Coast of the United States of America. Yeah. And, um, you know, the in all honesty, if that storm had gone 50 or 60 miles either to the east or to the west, um, there could have been a lot more physical damage to infrastructure. So, um, you know, the the most dangerous section of the storm, the right side of the storm, actually came ashore over an area that it has almost no development and has a lot of protective wetland. Very fortunate outcome. Um, the thing that I, I think these storms and uh, the frequency and intensity of, of the storms this year uh, really bring into focus one of the critical components that you've been researching and writing about at the program for the study of developed shorelines, and that is whether we can actually uh, institute, design, and build uh, shore protection projects given this level of risk, or whether we should be thinking seriously about moving out of the way. And I got to think, like you're saying, if these two storms, if, if Laura and Delta had struck in an area of, of dense development, of which there is a ton along the American shoreline, I, could, how do you build a shore protection project that can withstand a 17-foot storm surge? I don't know. Can we, we don't have enough money for that, do we? <laughs> I don't even know if we have a technique to do that. Um, big yeah, walls. I mean, <laughs> yeah, big walls. Design. You can't design beach protection projects, um, especially beach nourishment projects, to provide a high level of protection from from storms like that. You know, you um, I, especially um, in some areas of the coast where so much of the flooding actually comes in through the inlets and then floods the backside of the barrier island. You know, it's just it's just incredibly complicated and. You know, the other thing to keep in mind is that the vast majority of the protection from our beach nourishment projects accrues to just that very first row of properties. I mean, when you look at the cost analysis that the Corps does, when they're having to 
prove that there's an actual financial benefit from the federal cost share to these beach nourishment projects, well, they're pretty much looking at damage reduction to the first row of homes. I mean, that's where they're getting the lion's share of their benefit from these projects. So, you know, it's the beach nourishment projects are uh, certainly um, worthwhile for many of the communities that elect to have them um, as a part of their shoreline resilience plan. Um, but, you know, they're not protecting the entire community. And, um, you know, this doesn't really address at all the question of whose responsibility it should be to pay for these projects and, you know, what the long-term environmental impacts are of trying to do this every place in America. Well, I, that's a the concept that we like to talk about and we've talked about before on this show, Rob, is that uh, you're, you're interested in the, uh, the cost, the, 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 the cost of the risk on the property owner and how our systems kind of insulate uh, property owners sometimes from having to confront those costs head on. And I'm wondering, going back to Laura and Lake Charles, and I'll tell you, I really want to circle back to that region. I've driven, Peter, you you know this drive, uh, from here to, Louis, to uh, New Orleans. And it's like all causeway. You are elevated. That is a wet land. The, the I-10. That's the I-10 zone. And I actually got off to hit, hit a gas station there, uh, right there at Lake Charles on my way over. And I mean, it is just, it's just a very low, swampy, bayou-y zone. And I have to imagine that from a, well, you know, if you're of the opinion that development should be away from the shoreline, this is actually a zone where, to my knowledge, I think there's a lot of maybe industrial activity and stuff uh to the to the seaward side, if you will, of I ten that I drove on, but I don't believe there was there weren't houses. Yeah, you lightly, know, there were yeah, people living developed, there. Thank God, lightly, lightly developed, developed, lightly developed. But I'm wondering, um, Rob, have you had a chance to look at what the federal government is, what FEMA is looking at here for Lake Charles? I mean, what what are the damage? Has there been a damage assessment? Do you have any idea as to what? is going to happen here in terms of uh, yeah, the, the FEMA, the FEMA response. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's really bizarre, but um, I have heard almost nothing. <laughs> and there's been very little reporting um, follow-up in that area. Um, you know, it's, it's as if um, the storms didn't even really happen to, to, to everyone who's outside of that region. Um, you know, this is, um, these are catastrophic impacts for many of the smaller communities that are south of I-10. And, um, you know, I don't know if it's because of the combination of COVID and the craziness of the election season, but I, you know, I think that those impacts have really fallen off the map for most of us, for the media, yeah. and you know, even for uh, professionals like myself who s study that area. And you know, to some degree, the difficulty of travel today 
makes it hard. You know, we would have been down there doing some post-storm recon normally. Um, and, you know, these days it's just not essential travel for us to do that particular work because we don't have a, a targeted grant-funded project going on down there. And, you know, let me add that um, this is my own personal bias, but I feel a lot of sympathy for the folks that experience damage from these storms because by and large, you're talking about people who are living in their primary residence of modest means. These are, these are working class communities. Um, this, you know, this is not uh, a giant you know, resort area with large expensive investment properties and second homes. Um, yeah, there's some uh, significant business interests in the area, but those business interests are surrounded by lots of regular folks who just live and work there. And, you know, to me, again, this is my own bias. If there's some place where there should clearly be um, an important federal focus on making those people whole again, well, it's that kind of place, right? I mean, that's just, again, that's just my own personal bias. I, I see a federal interest in... Um, helping out those kinds of communities. I, I couldn't agree more. And this is uh, another thing I observed driving through this area is this is not an affluent zone. Now, this and, isn't the beachfront area where, you know, million dollar homes are perched on a sandy beach. That's not what's going on in this part of the Not American at all. Shoreline. Not at all. And it gets to uh, deeper questions about what was actually going on in that region. I mean, the his, my understanding, and I will not get into this in the pod because I'm just not nearly smart enough on the subject, but Peter, we've talked before about how the flood control measures of the Mississippi River there in uh, that air, air part of the American shoreline have been, um, have pushed people of color primarily into these high risk zones and um, it's just it's clearly a problem in the way that we've managed those areas. And now there are communities and, you know, it just creates a puts puts whole communities in quite a bit of uh, vulnerability. But you mentioned uh, post storm recon, which sounds like a, a Delta Force, you know, like a special forces movie or something. <laughs> What what is post storm recon from your perspective? What are you looking for when you show up after a storm uh, to advance your your research and your work? Well, for us, we are uh, typically very interested in the performance of any coastal protection or coastal engineering projects in the area. Um, you know, if Laura had been thirty miles further east, it would have been. Uh, extremely interesting for coastal scientists, especially those who are interested in large-scale coastal protection, because it would have tested so much of the um, barrier island building, wetland reconstruction, you know, the billions of dollars that are being spent in southern Louisiana to, uh, you know, make an attempt to prolong the life of uh, the Louisiana Delta region. Um, you know, that's not where it hit. But, you know, we do post-storm aerial photography. We make all of that imagery available as quickly as possible on our shutter, Shutterfly site. Um, you know, we are out there, um, when possible, measuring water lines and water heights. We have a 
uh, database of storm surge height measurements that we maintain. Uh, so, you know, in general, uh, what we're doing when we're working in an area like this, where we don't necessarily have a grant funded targeted project, we're just trying to learn as much as possible. And I, you know, I learned something new from, from every storm. They're all different. And I think one of the reasons maybe the coverage has been a little bit lax in addition to you know, the uniqueness of the year uh, in the election and the pandemic is, is simply the number of storms. Uh, I, I've sort and of lost. And the fires. I, yeah, and the fires issues out in the West in California are extraordinary. Emergency after uh, so many disaster declarations. And yeah, it has been. It's been I've a blur. lost. I really have lost track. And uh, and. and you know, I don't have these storms in mind now. There's been so many this year. I don't know what were the most significant, but there were a lot of powerful storms. Um, but Rob, I want to I want to touch on this thing you mentioned about had the storm been 25 miles further to the east and toward New Orleans, we'd have gotten uh, one of the grand experiments ever conducted on this, as you said, multi-billion-dollar investment in the uh, in establishing and reestablishing these offshore barrier island uh, and wetland communities out there as a, as a as a method of protection, uh, what's your sense of that as a as a direction? Uh, is this a better way to go? Um, folks can argue it's a green infrastructure approach. It's not walls. Uh, do you think around the American shoreline that this strategy of risk reduction is sensible, or is it? What, what's your thought about where we're headed here, given how much money we're putting into these ideas? Well, you know, in my mind, Louisiana is a completely different animal than just about any place else, right? You, yeah. I, mean, I think you sort of have to talk about it in a vacuum a little bit. Yeah, truly. Uh, because you have such um, a high rate of land subsidence over such a large area um, that, you know, even if you're out there restoring uh, barrier island systems out on the edge of the delta, to uh, you know, try and protect what infrastructure that's left out there, protect places like Port Fouchon and, and some of the wetlands. Um, you know, that's not halting the continuous degradation of all of these wetland ecosystems inland. Uh, and that's certainly there are some projects that are also designed to try and mitigate for that subsidence and that loss of those wetlands. But, right. you know, we're not going to be able to fix everything for sure. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, all of these projects are just delaying the inevitable. And so that, don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean necessarily that they're a waste of time. Um, you are preserving for a longer period of time, ideally, yep. some livelihoods and some very unique culture and some very unique uh, and important ecosystems for the country. Um, but, you know, it, it is uh, its own kind of managed retreat. Um, and so, you know, Louisiana as a model for uh, the rest of the country you know, is a little bit problematic. Sure, you know, we're probably learning things from these gigantic barrier islands that we're trying to build and maintain. Um, but it's it's just a completely different situation than 
what we're dealing with in the rest of the country and then the, the tools we might be using. I, I, I think you're right. It, it's, it, it's very, very unique given the massive size of the Mississippi River Delta and the, and the energy infrastructure in the region. Uh, but uh, let's, let's, let's talk about, about something closer to home for you over on the Carolinas shoreline in North Carolina. I've, I've been recently following uh, developments on Topsail Island, one of my favorite places on the American shoreline. Were you, were you following on coastalnewstoday.com? I, I was following on Coastal News Today. We, well, I'm very interested in what's happening with this federal shore protection project that's been authorized and funded for North Topsail Beach and, and Surf City. Uh, this is an area you have studied carefully and recently released uh, investigative reports on. But uh, it seems, Rob, that the town of North Topsail Beach is uh, not quite sure it can participate in that federal project and may, at the end of the day, choose not to. And I find this stunning that a given the fact that getting a federal shore protection project with the Corps of Engineers and the 50-year funding guarantee and all of this sort of stuff is such a brass ring for so many coastal communities, uh, to see North Topsail Beach uh, not jumping for that ring, I'm finding surprising. Do you have any insight on what's happening on Topsail Island on this federal shore protection project they've cooked up? Well, I don't have any personal insight of what's, you know, what's inside the head of the elected officials at North Topsail Beach. Um, but I, you know, I can tell you that the federal price tag on this was $237 million for, for all of Topsail Island, Yeah, right? That's a lot that's of a, money. That's a lot <laughs> that's, of money. It is so much more than it has ever been spent on any beach nourishment project in the state of North Carolina by, you know, by, by several times. And, that what that means is that the local match is also going to be extremely expensive yeah. for this project. Yeah. And um, the other thing is that because the northern portion of North Topsail Beach is in the coastal barrier resources system, they cannot extend that federal project up to the end of the island, up to the north end, right? Which is really where it's needed, actually. That's exactly it, right? That's where they need the sand. <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait. So, why can't they put it up there? Well, this is the COBRA law, the Coastal Barrier Resources uh, Act, which, because it is a lowly de low developed area, it is in a COBRA unit, and federal expenditures for shore protection are prohibited inside COBRA units. Uh, so, that is one of the odd things about it. This project, two hundred and thirty-seven million dollars, doesn't actually put the sand in front of the most vulnerable part of the community. Because, and I'm I'm a fan of the Coastal Barrier Resources Act. I think that as a policy, it's done great things for the American shoreline. But, I, you know, I hadn't made that connection that that's why this project limits are defined the way they are. The Coastal Barrier Resources Act, in my mind, is the most important piece of coastal legislation ever. I mean, you might wow. You might argue the Coastal Zone Management Act was up there, but you know this is in the 1970s where we essentially made a bipartisan decision to pull federal dollars out of coastal barrier islands because it didn't make sense for the federal government to be subsidizing risky investment in these places. This is 50 years ago, yep. right? Smart. How prescient was that? Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, if only we had the same common sense still today. Um, so the Coastal Barrier Resources Act really has 
moderated the density of development in the places that were sort of walled off from that federal investment. And it has prevented entirely the development in some places that are within that coastal barrier resources system. And, you know, the important lesson that we get from that is that when the private sector has to assume all of that risk themselves, well, you know what? (laughs) They weren't that interested. So, um, you know, that's there are some very important lessons to get out of that. And the Coastal Barrier Resources Act is still an excellent model for what we might do in the future to um, you know, put the risk back um, on those economies that are trying to benefit from being in those locations. You know, I have argued in a number of different forums that, um, you know, the first step in retreat nationwide is not to order everybody off the beach, but it's to take some of these repeat damaged communities that are not currently in the coastal barrier resources system and simply add them to the system. We just change the law so that we can put communities in there that have a higher density of development. And basically that just means they can no longer receive federal funds for beach nourishment projects and, um, other things like that. I mean, it, yeah, you know, yeah. that doesn't prevent them from paying for it themselves, but it's just basically saying that the, the federal government is no longer going to play a role in um, subsidizing that risk and creating this moral hazard that we create by pumping federal money into risky places. So yeah. you know, I, yeah. I, I think the Coastal Barrier Resources Act is an incredibly important piece of legislation. It was very bipartisan. Um, and still really does, still has bipartisan support within uh, within Congress. Well, Rob, I think one of the things I've noticed in the uh, on, on your website, uh, the study that you guys completed called Federal Expenditures Related to the Coastal Barrier Resources Act, uh, an investigation I think you guys completed in 2016. And the, the analysis showed that the existence of this statute, which, as you say, restricts federal expenditures in areas of the coast that have been identified as low developed and we do not wish to encourage development, that that statute has saved the federal government $9.5 billion between 1989 and 2013 and is projected to continue to save the federal government as much as $11 billion over the next 50 years. So, Uh, What we're talking about here through the Coastal Barrier Resources Act, as you're saying, is that the risks of shoreline development should not be subsidized at the federal level. And if communities wish to take these chances, they should they should do so with their own pennies in the private sector, in the local public sector. And uh, there's a reason to think that that reality would uh, reduce the number of bad decisions. I think that's what you're saying. Yeah. Simply put, that's, um, you know, that's what we're saying is, um, you know, I don't think that it's the federal government's role to order a retreat. And by the way, I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want a total retreat from the coast. I mean, I still love to go to the beach. I've got two boys. We go to the beach. When we go, we like to rent an oceanfront home. I've got no problem with the coastal economy. Um, being an important part of tourism, investments, you know, and all of those important factors that um, drive uh, 
so much of what makes our coastal states the vibrant places that they are. I grew up on the coast. Yep. Um, you know, I think it's still a very reasonable expectation that that economy will be taking care of itself. As um, you know, as my little county does here in the mountains of North Carolina, and you know, the side benefit to that, in my opinion, um, for those who are uh, researchers and coastal hazards and risk and and coastal managers is that. I think that the local economies, local elected officials would be a lot more interested in the science of coastal hazards and rising sea level and climate change if they have a lot of skin in the game. Um, mm -hmm. But if somebody else is footing the bill for your coastal protection, um, then you know you don't have to be quite as interested. One of the best examples, I think, that in my opinion, uh, of what you're discussing is, uh, I, I, I'm a fan of Topsail Beach, the small town of Topsail Beach with about a thousand people. Uh, they were part of a federal shore protection development process and withdrew. And the town uh, implemented its own local funding strategy in uh, partnership with the state of North Carolina. And uh, did dune and beach restoration projects uh, without federal money. And uh, it's worked out very well over the last 10 plus years now. Uh, the town has invested, well, I will say the town, there's been significant investments, millions of dollars in shore protection expenditures uh, in Topsail Beach. And here's the interesting thing about that story. Uh, the town's financial position with regard to the cost of beach restoration has been improved immensely because of federal expenditures through FEMA, post-storm disaster recovery funds, as opposed to federal shore protection uh, funding from the Corps of Engineers. Is this a backdoor channel into federal funding of shore, shore protection? And is it appropriate? It seems to be the way it's working. Uh, we see it all over the coast uh, with these massive federal supplement disaster supplemental expenditures in the billions of dollars now. Um, it seems federal fund, funds are flowing to the coast through the disaster process as opposed to the federal shore protection program that the Corps operates. Well, I, I think it's both for sure. Um, you know, we've had um, – after Katrina, we had a $60 billion off-budget disaster appropriation. After Sandy, we had a $60 billion uh, off-budget appropriation. Um, there was, you know, got close to $72 billion following Harvey and Maria. The, the Corps got $18 billion yep. in that uh, disaster relief bill from February 2018, I believe it was. Um, so, you know, those giant off-budget appropriations are uh, doing all of those things. They are funding future shore protection projects so that the Corps is going around now offering everybody a 50-year project design. Um, and they are you know, putting roads back and assisting with the power grid and small business loans and all kinds of things like that. Wow. So, you know, it it's difficult to even add up all of the federal money that flows into um, these coastal resort communities following a storm and, um, 
you know, to try and understand the true level at which they are subsidized. And, and it's also, you know, it's, it's haphazard in a lot of ways, too. If you go up to the northern outer banks of North Carolina, for example, up in Dare County, largely they're financing their own beach nourishment projects yeah. with some assistance from the state. They're not, these are not big federal projects. Well, you know, it's, it's pretty hard to understand from their point of view, you know, why the federal dollars have been flowing to Wilmington and Carolina Beach for 50 years, um, but not to Dare County. Um, so, you know, it's all problematic to some degree. And to me, the, you know, the ultimate solution is to incorporate all those costs into that local economy. And, and obviously there are beach towns that do pay the lion's share of their shore protection costs and they have not gone away. Hilton Head, South Carolina is a perfect example. Yeah, uh, that, I do have this question. I was, uh, I, I've got two questions, but uh, I'll save uh, this one I want to ask first. If the cost, Rob, were to become more affordable, if say, I don't know, some future technology emerges that makes um, coastal, you know, shore protection using, you know, basically renourishment style stuff like moving sand around, moving the sediment into a circuit were to become in a hypothetical world. Now we're talking All about right. the, the magical future and it were able to be borne out by the local community. Let's say the costs that are really low. Would you have a problem with that? I wonder like if, yeah, is that a pro- is that problematic to you the kind of the artificial management of a shoreline for shore protection purposes if there were no costs associated with it so so first of all uh, on your premise if if i was 16 inches taller i probably would have had a great nba career <laughs> but anyway um we could talk about that if you'd like. That's a, this is an open podcast. It takes more than mere height to be a success in the NBA. You got to have some oh, skill. I was, not, I was not a bad uh, high school point guard. Anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, I probably wouldn't have been a very good NBA point guard, though. Um, so, no, of course not. I don't. I don't have um, uh, a problem with beach nourishment. In, you know, in principle. Um, with one caveat, and that is that um, we still do not really understand what the long-term environmental impacts are of doing these projects and how they're impacting fisheries and migratory shorebirds and the other things like that that there are a lot of folks Mm -hmm. that care about. So, you know, if this uh, magic low-cost shore protection that you're promising me is also completely environmentally benign, then hell, let's do it everywhere. Yeah. um, as long as we're assuming, if we can assume those two things, that it's very cheap, locally paid for, and has no bad environmental impact, we'd all be for it. And, and I think that, you know, it would have to be made of unobtainium. You know, you know that element? <laughs> I've not heard of that. I wouldn't say, is it a fantasy element? Uh, <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, I actually, you know, not to get, not no, but, to. But, but I think that's important to understand what your question is, Tyler, which is really, is it is the problem fundamentally a cost issue? Is there more to it than that? Well, I, th- I think that that's part of the problem. Um, but I also, because my second question, what I was thinking about, Rob, is like, I could imagine, and I, I, I want to, 
know if you actually get together with these people and is there do you have a, a counterpart of like the the center for developed mountain uh towns or the center for developed um like riverine uh flood air you know high prone flood areas where you guys get together on a zoom and all talk about how these you know privately funded developments are getting subsidized by, by public dollars either because of the firefighting yeah. stuff or the roads that are being built out to them you know to yeah. service these people it's not it doesn't only happen on the coast yes yeah, right. well i mean it's obviously the coast has its problems and we talk about them all the time the, the yeah. risks of storms and what we're talking about but what comes to mind is is that there the there are other problems they might not be as you know the crucible of the coast as i like to say is is uh is hot. It's vivid. It's so, <laughs> go so ahead. My friend Harry Simmons. I don't know if you guys remember Harry yes. Simmons. Yes, yeah, former uh, ASBPA executive director. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So my friend Harry Simmons and I were on Squawk Box one morning on uh, CNBC, <laughs> and you know the, Harry Simmons basically sort of made that same argument. He's you know it was basically Rob, why are you picking on the coast when we have fires and tornadoes and all of these other things that are problematic as well. And um, here's my primary response to that. Um, so for sure, things like tornadoes do not destroy the same town seven times in 20 years, but um, coastal storms have done that in places like Dauphin Island, Alabama. Yep. Um and there is also a similar argument made with fires. Um, you know, it seems like the same places are burning every year, but it's not the same places that are burning every year out in California. Right. You know, fires are, are definitely a, a big issue. Um, but it's what's so unique about the coast is this, is that on, on the oceanfront in particular, more than 95% of it is investment property. Um, it is demonstrably vulnerable, and we know and understand that vulnerability very well. Like you get ten scientists in a room and ask them to to outline the you know ten most at risk sections of coast, we would agree on almost all of it. Mm -hmm. And we have communities that have experienced repeat damage over and over again, which I guess is what repeat means. Yep. Um, <clears throat> And so I, you know, I think that it is somewhat of a unique animal in, in in that respect because we can so clearly identify the exposure to the hazards. We can uh, clearly identify the costs to the public, federal taxpayers, state taxpayers, local taxpayers. Um, you know, the science is in. Yeah, and we um, know the score. We do. It, it, you know, it is in those respects. Um, a little bit different, in my opinion. And to, to answer the beginning of your question, I don't know that there are other folks out there. There's groups like Taxpayers for Common Sense that um, you know pay attention to these kinds of issues all over the country in a bunch of different ways. But um, you know, I think uh, for the most part, we're we're somewhat of a unique outfit. 
It's a good, uh, and what I like about the work that you do is is that you guys actually do get on the ground, engage with coastal communities, uh, provide expert uh, analysis and advice to them. And I understand that you've recently completed some work in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Can you tell us a little bit about the project that you undertook for the city and what you uh, what you learned? So, uh, so we actually we were working with Horry County, South Carolina. Uh, okay. Uh, so, which where Myrtle Beach is located. Um, but, you know, just to, to be clear, we're actually working in the county writ large and, and not within the municipality of Myrtle Beach. But for, for those who don't know where Horry County is, it's the county that surrounds the Myrtle Beach, North Myrtle Beach area and extends inland. It includes um, the watersheds of the Waccamaw River and the PD River, um, two areas that have experienced um, quite a bit of flooding over the last decade, and most particularly from uh, Hurricanes Florence, Matthew, and Joaquin. And um, like so many places, the Horry County is in the process of evaluating their uh, preliminary flood insurance rate maps from the Federal Emergency Management Agency, the commonly referred to as the FEMA's flood maps, and developing a resilience plan. And one of the first things we noticed is that there were parts of the county where the FEMA maps did not do a very good job at all in predicting where the water was during Florence or where the damage was. Hmm. Um, Let's, uh, Rob, if we can, for the benefit of uh, our listeners out there who may not be familiar with the FEMA flood maps, can you uh, give us a little bit of background on what these maps are meant to do and how they are deployed or how they're used. Well, I'll, the folks at FEMA would probably do this in a in a way that would make them more comfortable. But I'll I'll do my best. You know, basically, these maps are designed to set flood insurance rates. So the folks at FEMA will tell you that they are not necessarily designed to be a one hundred percent accurate predictive tool for where the flood water would be from all different kinds of flooding. Um, nevertheless, many, many localities and communities use this as primarily their only tool for understanding flood risk. And the FEMA special flood hazard areas are those places where there is a 1% chance every year that there might be flood water. So okay. this is your 100-year flood. So it's an attempt to map the places within your locality, your municipality, your county, where you might have a 1% chance every year that there would be flooding. And they also determine what's called a base flood elevation. So how high above the ground would those floodwaters be? Right. And so if I'm, a, if I'm looking to buy a home, uh, due diligence might take me to a federal flood map to say, gee, I'm in this particular part of the county. The chance of of this area flooding is identified on this map and the level of flooding that I can expect is presented here. That's relevant information, both in terms of insurance rate setting, as you're saying in the federal flood insurance program, but for the community and for homeowners. Um, but it seems like what you're finding is these maps aren't necessarily, uh, what was the problem or what, what, it, what, it, what are we missing in our federal flood in, uh, mapping process that, uh, that's leaving out uh, areas that are vulnerable and are not considered flood uh, potential. What's going on there? 
So I might also add that if, if, if you want to get a mortgage on that piece of property you're about to buy, the bank is going to want you to um, want to know whether you're in a flood zone or not <laughs> and right. uh, whether or not you should be carrying flood insurance and um, you know, whether you should be elevating above that base flood elevation when um, when you're constructing a new piece of property or something like that. Um, and there's a, a wide variety of local regulations that start with these FEMA flood maps and and, and e either add to them or accept them or you know, do all kinds of different things. Um, but our main role here was just to provide information to uh, county managers and planners and the local residents of Horry County to help them understand uh, what the, their preliminary FEMA maps can and can't tell them. And so right off, the, we noticed that in the upper parts of the watershed, uh, especially in the Waccamaw River, um, there was a tremendous amount of damage that was outside of the mapped 100-year and even 500-year floodplain in the brand new maps. And, you know, um, I don't want to uh, throw stones at FEMA and their mapping process too much as a part of this. You know, and to some degree, they're being asked to do an incredibly difficult job. These are really complex natural systems. And um, the meteorology of our storms is dynamic, it's changing, and it's also very complex. So having an understanding of and being able to model the physics of um, the next 100-year storm or 500-year storm in these very complex riverine and coastal systems yeah. where you may have interactions between water coming down the rivers and storm surge coming in from the ocean, I mean, it's just really hard to do Very and everybody difficult. needs to understand that. Um, so, you know, that's, that's point number one. <laughs> um, and I take point number one. <laughs> so, um, you know, as a geologist, I really, uh, have a firm belief that the past is the key to the present and understanding the past is the best way to understand the present and then maybe even the future. So what we have elected to do in Horry County, rather than try and create a better model, is use some very good United States Geological Survey flood level data and very high quality LIDAR generated digital elevation model to mm -hmm. map the topography to simply go in and make excruciatingly detailed maps of where the water was during Florence and Matthew. An empirical analysis. Yes, it is what it is. This yeah. is where the water was. So what actually we have happened. created, sorry, we've created what we're calling a supplemental flood zone. And it's, if you overlay it on the FEMA maps, you'll see that in many, many places, our flood zone um, extends significantly past the edges of the FEMA map. And our base flood elevations are four to five feet higher than the base flood elevations wow. predicted in the FEMA firms. That's a big difference. It's a big difference, and it's real numbers. <laughs> so uh, what we've essentially done is created um, something that's non-predictive. It's just as, this is where the water was during Florence. It's um, uh, right now the, the, the county is going to be in the process. We've just recently delivered the product, and 
you know, they're going to be involved in discussions um, trying to decide what you do with this kind of information. Is it, wow. Does it end up being purely informational? Should we make it regulatory? Um, you know, what, what do you do with that kind of a special flood zone? Perfect role for scientists, geologists uh, to do, which is to try to tell the truth about what the world is like. And the policy implications of that are left to the elected officials who have to grapple with the reality. Uh, Hurricane Florence, was that 20, was it 18, 2018? I think so. Was it? Yes. And was extraordinary. I mean, it was a huge rainfall event, 40 plus inches, if I remember. I mean, it was an extraordinary flooding hurricane and, and had tremendous and even greater impact on the interior counties and communities than it did on the beachfront communities. That was it. That was it. That was a monster of a storm and a very unique one, wasn't it? Or, or is that something we should expect maybe to continue to see? Uh, boy, that's the eighty billion dollar yeah, question. Right? It, I mean, yeah, if we could don't predict the future. <laughs> it was a very big storm, but um, in in this particular area, Hurricane Florence, which you know had. Um, a lot of inland flooding, that m- most of which came down from North Carolina. Sorry about that. Um, uh, you know, Hurricane Florence, which followed Hurricane Matthew in 2016. Well, Matthew and Florence generated flooding in many of the same places in Horry County that huh. are outside of those FEMA maps. Wow. So, you know, following Matthew, you had a lot of folks saying, well, that was a one-off. That was just a monster amount of precipitation and flooding. Well, as it turns out, you know, two years later, we had a storm that flooded the same areas and some even worse. So, yeah, you know, I think the answer to your question is right now we don't know. But I think the least safe assumption is would be to assume that this isn't going to happen again anytime soon. That would probably not be a very safe assumption. Right. And, and not prudent. Uh well, Rob, it's 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 always great to check in with you, and I love the fact that the the range of the work that you're doing at the, at at the at the uh, program for the study of developed shorelines is both from a technical, pragmatic, uh, scientific, informational point of view. You also are aware of and participate in the public dialogue about these issues, and I think it's a real service to the American public, particularly on the shoreline that uh, professionals and academics like yourself are out in the real world talking about these issues and and the uh, consummate point guard you leading know, you know the field general as you were <laughs> yeah i mean none of this stuff is easy and the points of view are uh, are broad and uh it's never simple and i think that it's healthy for the for the coastal communities to have a dialogue that includes your perspective rob and you're always welcome to come back on the show so any closing thoughts well, thanks. I appreciate those remarks, guys. It's very, very kind of you. I, you know, I think we do see our role as being um, sort of the instigators of conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I would never say that we shouldn't be doing beach nourishment anywhere. That's, you know, that's not my position. Um, maybe we shouldn't be doing it everywhere, or shouldn't expect to be doing it. But you know, I'm not saying we shouldn't be doing it anywhere. I think that. You know, my biggest complaint writ large is that we still, you know, as a nation, don't seem to have a great plan for how we're going to be approaching all of these problems. We do not. We are spending a lot of money, um, but we are. We're doing so much of it off budget, and we don't seem to have a great 
plan. And That's so just, that just leaves us to raise a lot of questions. Yeah, well, uh, I, I think that that is precisely where we want to leave it the day before Election Day. We need some damn plans here, we ladies need a, and gentlemen. We need a national strategy. And Rob, I'll tell you, it's interesting. Uh, we recently spoke with Joan Pope, who is a 30-year uh uh, at the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, fantastic, uh, who's worked on these projects from the federal perspective. And her one of her main comments to us was, you know, the problem is we don't have a national strategy when it comes to this issue still in America. And I think your call for that uh, is coming from both sides of the aisle, both on the engineering side and on the geologist and the geomorphologist guys uh, who are looking. And at Chip Fletcher said the same thing yeah. out in Hawaii. We need a national strategy. We need a national strategy. It's time. Like I say, we're spending billions and billions of dollars on these problems, and uh, it's it's tough. But I appreciate what you guys do, and it's always good to hear from you. And, uh, you know, I, I hope you don't mind. Every About every three or four months, we want to ring you up and see how things are looking. And uh, thank you very much for, for sharing your insights with the audience on the American Shoreline Podcast, uh, Rob. Really appreciate it. Sure, my pleasure. And, you know, thanks for the work that you guys are doing to keep these issues discussed and in the forefront of everybody's mind and imagination. Uh, You guys do a great job. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Have a great week.